welcome everyone tonight to our study of 2 Kings, and I'd like to begin tonight with an illustration of something that is scientifically true, but metaphorically sarcastic, and that is, do crocodiles really have tears? Well, scientifically, the answer is yes. Crocodiles do indeed shed tears. These tears contain proteins and minerals. The tears help keep the eye clean and lubricate it. And this is the way it it helps lubricate their eyelids from going down into the water and back up. One of the things that they noticed about crocodiles is they have this appearance of crying either before or during them eating. (laughs) So the phrase, the sarcastic phrase is crocodile tears. That's when someone has tears, but there's no meaning behind it, or it's the wrong meaning behind it. And so that's called crocodile tears. Well, we're going to see, I believe, some crocodile tears in our study this evening. We are looking at 2 Kings, and we are looking at verses 1 through 19. It's a, it's a great chapter. I would have liked to have finished it, but there are a lot of details. Plus, just a heads up, there's a lot of confusion because we have another Joash or Jehoash, only he's not king of the south, he's going to be king of the north, and his father's name is Jehoahaz. So we'll we'll try to keep all of that straight. But if you would turn in your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 13, and we'll continue to read it and then give a running commentary Uh, But I will break it up as far as an outline goes. I think it's very helpful to have an outline of what this passage is about, this chapter. But we're only going to cover 19 verses. What we're going to see is first a review over the last part of chapter 12. That was Jehoash of the southern kingdom. And then we're going to take a look at the northern kingdom. And this is the way the author does it. He'll talk about the life and times of a particular king in the one kingdom. And then around the same time, he'll go to another king of the other kingdom and his time. And so we're going to see verses 1 through 9, Jehoahaz. He reigns over Israel. And by the way, when you hear it say, He's the king of Israel. It means he's the king of the northern part, the northern kingdom. When it says he's the king, someone is the king of Judah, it's referring to the southern part. Well, then we come to verses 10 through 13, only really just those few verses, but we're going to see his son Joash reign over Israel, the northern kingdom. And then we're going to see another appearance of Elisha, but it will be indeed Elisha's appearance in the scriptures as far as 2 Kings goes. Well, we are not going to get all of the verses tonight. We're not going to get a chance to go through all of them concerning Elisha. We will pick it up next week with Elisha, but anyway, this is in reference to Uh, the last prophetic instruction that he is going to to give. So that's what we have this evening. But before we go any further, let's bow in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. It does have a double-edged sword. On the one hand, it encourages us as believers. On the other hand, it slices the flesh. As we see these things, Lord, in these kings, we ask you that if there's any ways in our lives that are unpleasing to you, that you would remove it, Father, with the sword of the Spirit. 
But Father, we also pray too that we will cut away discouragement and understand that you have given us victory in Christ and we see about it in the the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. Help us to see these examples, Lord, for as they are and apply them the best we can and we'll thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, just a hint. I did start with the illustration of crocodile tears. It's going to take just a little while till we get to that passage where we see the crocodile tears. All right. So what have we seen so far? What did we see last week in chapter 12, the last part? Well, we talked about Jehoash, also known as Joash, but of the southern kingdom. He did what was right before the Lord, but he only did it as long as the priest Jehoiada was alive. And while Jehoiada was alive, Jehoash uh, orchestrated the repair of the temple through some wise administration. But when Jehoiada died, we find out right from the get-go, Jehoash abandoned the worship of Yahweh was under the influence of his officials, and they began to worship false gods. They followed in the way of Jeroboam, who was of the northern kingdom. He also went to go as far as stone Zechariah, Jehoiada's son, who we believe was a priest, but now also a prophet, because he gave him the prophetic warning from the Lord that what they're doing is wrong. So they stone him. We also find out that the Lord judged him and brought Hazael to come against him. And finally what had to happen was he gave him the temple treasures to keep him away from destroying Israel. And then finally we see that he was buried He was buried in the city of David, but he was not buried with the other kings. And that is a way of expressing he was not good. He ended up doing evil in the sight of the Lord. Well, that's the southern kingdom. What's going on in the northern kingdom? Well, I'm glad that you asked. Let's take a look at 2 Kings chapter 13 beginning in verse 1. It says, In the 23rd year of Joash, the son of Ahaziah, king of Judah. So we're going back in time a little bit. So even though we just read of the death of Jehoash, we're going back in time to catch the reign of Jehoahaz. So let me just kind of Take a look here, the chronology of kings. I I hope this is helpful. We see where we've started and we've come down. And you you see on the side of the kings of Judah, you see Jehoash there. And he reigned from 835 to 796. That's quite a long time. And at the very end of that time, he is going to be king while Jehoahaz, the son of Jehu, becomes king over the northern kingdom. And then we're also going to see tonight a little bit of Joash. So we're going to spend in this narrative a little bit of time over the years with these two kings, even though a lot is not said about them. So let's take a look at it again. In the 23rd year of Joash... That's the southern kingdom, the son of Ahaziah, king of Judah, Jehoahaz, northern kingdom, the son of Jehu, became king over Israel at Samaria, and he reigned 17 years. So 17 years in the life and span and reign of these kings is pretty good, but in those 17 years, there's what's going to be written in the next nine verses is going to cover it all. Verse two actually covers it all right there. Look at verse two. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. Well, of course he did because most of the kings do, both southern and northern. 
And it says, and he followed the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, with which he made Israel sin, and he did not turn from them. So we see this theme being said over and over. The main sin in 1 Kings and 2 Kings is idolatry, the worship of false gods, which God warned them about happening and that he would judge them. And so whenever we see it, it's particularly talking about idolatry. And of course, that was the sin of Jeroboam. You remember Jeroboam didn't want to go down and worship in the southern kingdom. We're not going to go down with those guys. So he created a golden calf to worship in the northern kingdom, an abomination. There was actually two of them, one in the northern part of the northern kingdom and one in the southern part of the northern kingdom. And he's the one that started really Israel down this path of idolatry, the worship of false gods. And it says he made Israel sin. And by the way, we see that almost every week. Even these kings, it says they follow Jeroboam and they made Israel sin. The idea of the Leadership, spiritual leadership, has a profound impact upon the people of Israel. Is the same thing that we would apply to ourselves. We would apply that to our families. That spiritual leadership has an impact of one way or another upon those underneath the authority. So it's so important, but it's such a bad example here from the book of First and Second Kings. Well, look at verse 3. It says, So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Of course it was. And he gave them continually into the hand of Hazael, king of Aram, and into the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Hazael. So the Lord's anger is especially kindled with this idolatry. When they forsake him, the Lord, and begin to worship these other gods. And we've seen this. First Kings chapter 14. It says that you also have done more evil than all who were before you and have gone and made for yourself other gods and molted images to provoke me to anger and have cast me behind your back. And we see that throughout the book of 1 Kings, and we're going to see that in 2 Kings. Jehoahaz continued that behavior. And so the Lord is going to judge him. The Lord is going to judge him. And so how does the Lord judge? Well, one of the ways the Lord judges, and we've seen this in 2 Kings and 1 Kings, is he will raise up an enemy to continue to barrage his people so that his people might turn to him and repent, to which he will always have mercy and forgive them. Now, I want to say that we're about to embark on a very, very typical theme here. The next few verses are going to see Israel sinned, the anger of the Lord punished them, they then prayed to the Lord, he forgave them, and then they went back to sinning again. So we're going to see that in these next verses. Someone said this is akin to really the theme of the book of Judges that just goes in this spiral all the time. Well, we see this as well. Now, one other thing I want to say, notice whose hand the Lord is giving Israel into. Hazael. And I've remarked every time we've come up against Hazael, you remember Hazael. He was the one who was talking with Elisha. And Elisha began to weep. And he said, why are you weeping? And Elisha said, because I see all of the bloodshed, the terrible bloodshed that you will bring about on the house of Israel, including women and children. So here he is again. Imagine this is what Elisha saw, because he said he did, and imagine it just evoked that emotion. And here's Hazael being used over and over. 
Well, we come to verse 4, because this is, this is a serious thing. What's happening to Israel is a serious thing, and we're going to see that this and all other enemies really deplete the army of Israel. We'll, take, we'll see that in this chapter. But verse 4, Jehoahaz entreats the Lord. He prays to the Lord. Look at what it says. Then Jehoahaz entreated the favor of the Lord, and the Lord listened to him. For he saw the oppression of Israel, how the king of Aram oppressed them. Well, here we have him entreating the Lord. It's the idea of prayer. It is the idea of seeking the favor of the Lord. And we are tempted to say that there, this is real repentance but we'll find out that it's not. We are tempted to say that he has a heart for the Lord. At least he did turn to the Lord, where some of the other kids, like kings, didn't even turn to the Lord. So at least he turned to the Lord. And if it is true that his heart wasn't really repentant, we still see God showing mercy. And I think it gives us a little hint here. He, God listened to him and God saw the oppression of his people. They were oppressed. They were being killed. Women were being killed even while pregnant. They were being ripped apart. And God had mercy on them and compassion. One of the things that Second Kings, like all of the other Old Testament books, show is God's compassion. And we would think, well, you know what? If, you, if you're a sinner like that, you deserve the worst of the worst. Be careful because we are sinners who deserve the worst of the worst, hell. But because of God's mercy, we are saved. So we're looking at this from God's point of view. And so he showed mercy. Um, when we think of mercy... One writes this, that the attribute of God's mercy, uh, and it would be compassion as well. You're seeing the idea of compassion when God is moved, especially toward his own people, even if they are not fully repentant. Mercy is God's tender-hearted, showing compassion toward the miserable, needy people, fallen people, not bringing upon them what they deserve. That is the mercy and the compassion of God. By the way, we see that same mercy and compassion with God the Son when he is here in his earthly ministry. One of the things that always has impressed me is when Jesus was in between performing miracles and healings in these cities, to show that he was indeed God's son, there would come along someone whose son or daughter had died and the mother or the father was weeping and he would stop and he was moved with compassion and he would go over and in some instances he raised them from the dead. That's the compassion. He, and compassion is the idea that you're moved with something. We can become so callous we're moved with nothing anymore. That's that's that. That's not Christian living. We ought to be moved by some things. And and then the idea of mercy is the forgiveness of sins. The true compassion is the forgiveness of sins. And we see Christ doing that even with the adulterous woman. So we see this attribute of both God in the Old Testament and God the Son in the New Testament. And here is an example of it. Well, what happened? Well, the Lord gave them a deliverer. Verse 5 says that he answered the prayer and he gave them a deliverer. All right, it says the Lord gave Israel a deliverer. doesn't say who it is, but gave them a deliverer so that they escaped from under the hand of the Arameans and the sons of Israel lived in their tents as formerly. Now, before we talk about the deliverer, there, there is a spiritual metaphor here. Israel has 
been sinning against the Lord. They ask for mercy. He sends a deliverer, ultimately the Lord Jesus Christ, who happens to be our deliverer from our sin and punishment. And so he's the ultimate deliverer, but that's not who this is. Who is this deliverer? Well, some say it's Elisha. Um, Elisha is going to come up in this chapter, the last time that we will see him alive. But I, I don't know that that's true. It doesn't say that in the scriptures. And then others say, well, it's going to be Jeroboam II. So we're going to see Jeroboam II. He's Joash from the northern kingdom. It's his son. But we haven't seen him yet. And it's possible that this deliverance can come in a future aspect. And I I see that as well in all of this. But most likely, the deliverer is a secular king. God can use secular, ungodly nations to bring discipline. He can also use secular, ungodly kings to deliver Israel. God truly is sovereign, and it says that like the streams of a water, he has the king's heart in his hand and turns it wheresoever he wills. So God is in charge of that. So he's going to use, or or it's believed that, he uses King Adad Narari III. Gotta love that name. He's from Assyria. And remember, the Assyrians are gaining power at this time because, well, I I know we all know it, so it's not a spoiler alert. The Assyrians are going to take the northern kingdom into captivity in the end of this. They're never going to repent, and they have to be fully punished. Well, we see him uh, fighting against some of these other nations uh, and places like Tyre and Sidon and Medium and Edom, and Egypt, and Damascus, and he's defeating them. Well, he also is going to be fighting against Aram. So Aram cannot give their sole concentration to Israel anymore because they're trying to survive themselves. So it says here that Israel is going to escape from the hand of the Arameans because they're busy trying to survive themselves. And notice it says, and the sons of Israel lived in their tents as formerly. This means they lived in peace and rest from their enemies. God gave a deliverer, probably this this, uh, ungodly king to to go against the enemy. So what is it? uh, uh, What is the uh, cliche, the motif? uh, The enemy of my enemy is my friend. So I suppose that would apply. One writes, the Arameans consequently turned their attention from attacking Israel to defending themselves against the Assyrians. Thus, Israel escaped Aram's power and the people were able to return to their homes and live in peace for a time, for a time. So they had been disciplined by the Lord. They cried out to the Lord. The Lord sent a deliverer. All is well, right? No. Look at verse 6. And I have to double check, make sure we're in the book of 2 Kings and not the book of Judges. It says, Nevertheless, they did not turn away from the sins of the house of Jeroboam, with which he made Israel sin, but walked in them, And the Asherah also remained standing in Samaria. So they go right back at it. And I think at this point, when you're looking at Jehoahaz and he's praying to the Lord, it probably is just to get out of trouble. It's not because he's seeking the Lord, because he turned right to these false gods. And and isn't that amazing? I mean, you, you... Why didn't you turn to the false gods to deliver you? Oh, because they don't even exist. It's just a totem pole. And it's those kinds of poles. And even Isaiah talks about this, that the skilled laborer will take his axe and he will chip away on a tree and get a 
an idol to worship. And then he'll go take the, the chips, the wood chips, and go cook hamburgers with them. And this is just absurd when you think about it. Well, they didn't turn to these false gods. Actually, they probably had been turning to the false gods, and they didn't deliver. And so they turned to God, but they didn't stay there. This is why God was so angry at their idolatry. This was the main sin. And once again, Jeroboam's name is brought up. How would you like, how would you like to be someone whose name is brought up over and over in scripture as a bad example? Well, that's what we have here. And then it goes on to say, and the Asherah also remained standing in Samaria. Now we saw Jehu and some others. We've seen them uh, tear down the altars, but not all of the altars. Some of the high places remain. And here, this, I believe, is presumably an idolatrous and famous tree or pole that was kept standing of Asherah. And who was Asherah? Well, we talked about her last week. She was the cohort of Baal. Uh, she was a female goddess, and this is to whom they would indeed worship because she was the goddess of fertility and agriculture and all of those things. But this Asherah is still standing. So I don't know, you know, uh, Lou, we're, we're going back to back on, on Asherah here with even the same picture. So I don't even know if this is an exact replica, but it is a replica. It's a replica of Asherah. She's always involved in a tree. And I said last time, I said, it looks like Groot in the, in the uh, Guardians of the Galaxy. Uh, anyway, you probably know who he is, and all he says is Groot. And somehow or other, the little raccoon can understand what Groot means in every instance. Well, getting back to this, this, this was not so lighthearted. They would worship these, and if there were many of them, uh, they were Asherah poles. And again, the tree is there for growth, fertility, um, agriculture, and so this is who they worshipped. And it says, the Asherah, noun, remained standing in Samaria. Well, we know what's going to happen next, don't we? There's going to be judgment. Judgment for not turning from these fully, not being fully repentant, not fully having faith. So look at what happened here. Even though there was a deliverer, and we're trying to figure out the timetable, when did the deliverer come in? When did this uh, king come in and cause um, the Arameans to stop attacking Israel? Well, you know, all, all of that probably you have to look at history and then there's still some skepticism of, of exactly when that happened. But what happened when the smoke cleared? It says, for he left to Jehoahaz of the army not more than 50 horsemen and 10 chariots, not 10,000 chariots, 10 chariots and 10,000 footmen. For the king of Aram had destroyed them and made them like the dust at threshing. So the, there is punishment mixed in with this mercy. And we, this is what is the result of it. And, and this is the back and forth with Israel and Jehoahaz is no different than any of the others. Now, just let me say, the 10 chariots, we could compare that to Solomon's chariots. He had 1,400 chariots. Well, this guy has 10 chariots, and so they have no army at all. And again, why would God do that? So that they look to him. They don't need any chariots if they have the Lord. Well, then that's all we really hear about Jehoahaz at this point. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did have one ray of hope when he prayed, but we, we see and I think we surmise that it wasn't really uh, serious, wasn't true faith. 
And then it says, now the rest of the acts of Jehoahaz and all that he did and his might, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? Well, we're left with this, this name of this book again. And for the most part, it has always been the royal documents of the kingdom, not necessarily the book of Second Chronicles. However, we, we have seen, especially like last week, there was something in Second Chronicles about it. But I think that this title is, I guess you have to choose one or the other. And I, and I would choose that it is the royal uh, document. Um, one of the reasons is Jehoahaz, uh, he's not really talked about in Second Chronicles. So it can't be talking about that book. Um, so it, it, it's talking about these royal documents of the, it's chronicles, meaning history, of kings of Israel. And then there's a chronicles of the kings of Judah. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it is the book of chronicles, even though it can be in the book of chronicles. All right. So if that's confusing, well, what do you expect? from a book that has Joash and Jehoaz, the same name, same person, both in the southern kingdom and in the northern kingdom. Well, you know, actually this book is very much in detail, very much historical. Notice how every time when they mention one of the kings, it tells what year was the other king, uh, how long has the other king been reigning, and then how long they reigned. And so you can figure this out. And it's highly historical, highly true, and highly moral. Well, in verse 9, it says, And Jehoahaz slept with his fathers, and they buried him in Samaria. And Joash, his son, became king in his place. Now, we just see that it's, he's sleeping with his fathers. And he died and they buried him with his fathers. Doesn't necessarily mean with the other kings. We see this in Judah. So it's definitely a negative thing. But in Samaria, in Samaria, where they're all evil, probably did bury him with the other evil kings. What was the big deal? So this is what we see. And then we see Joash, his son, become king. And of course, Joash is kind of the nickname for Jehoash, just like the Jehoash we saw in the southern kingdom, but this is in the northern kingdom. And so we're, we're going to try to keep these straight. I, I really try to be pretty consistent in putting an N for northern kingdom behind any of the kings that are in the northern kingdom, and then the same with the southern by the way, I did take a look here. Um, if we were to look at the dates, we can see that uh, King Adad Narari was there long enough to stretch to both Jehoahaz's reign and Jehoash's reign. So he was in uh, control for such a long time that it, for that length of time, we're thinking that truly did give peace and rest to Israel. Well, let's talk about Joash. And let me say that with Joash, we are going to finally get to the crocodile tears. So one has crocodile prayers, meaning not done of the heart, because crocodiles only cry when they're hungry and getting ready to eat. This this food is so good, it brings tears to my eyes. <laughs> well, we have crocodile prayers with Jehoahaz, and now we're going to have crocodile tears with Joash. All right, so let's look at verse 10. And again, watch how it starts out with the historicity. This isn't fable. Fables don't talk like this. This is real historical things that have happened, including the miracles. It says in verse 10, in the 37th year of Joash. Now, which Joash are we talking about? Joash, king of Judah. 
Oh, the southern king. In his 37th year, Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, became king over Israel, the northern kingdom in Samaria, and he reigned for 16 years. So this is why we're able to put dates to it and get close. I think Lou mentioned that in his study that, you know, it can't be exact. One of the problems is, is the years that accounts a king in his rule and reign and sovereignty depends on whether a little part of that year is counted as a full year or waiting to the first full year. So it depends on who's doing the calculating. So that's why there's a little bit of difference here. But anyway, what this is telling us is that um, Joash is going to begin his reign in 798, and he will continue it until 782. So that's what we're going to see, and he reigned for 16 years, depending on whether they used uh, the the little part of the first year or waited till the whole year. Well, let's get right to it. Look at verse 11. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. And he did not turn away from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, with which he made Israel sin, but he walked in them. You know, this repetition should not be laborious for us. This is part of the book of Second Kings. This is what they did. This is what their sin was. This is why eventually the northern kingdom goes into Assyrian captivity. And we as the reader were going, oh my word, it's happening again. And the same thing again about Jeroboam. He did evil in the sight. And uh, what does he mean by that? Well, he probably did a lot of evil things, but in particular, it's about his idolatry. Well, we have a little bit here with verse 12. It says, Now the rest of the acts of Joash and all that he did and his might, with which he fought against Amaziah, king of Judah, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Israel? Well, we're actually going to talk, not tonight, but when we talk about Amaziah, we're actually going to refer back to Joash and the war between them. We're going to see that. So he will be mentioned again. But again, I'm given, I'm, I'm given the book of Chronicles of the kings of Israel, uh, a secular um, royal document. And of course, we remember when we started the book, we, we even made that assumption and we read from John MacArthur. That's how John MacArthur and virtually every other commentary uh, takes it. So he, the rest of the acts are, are, in, this other, are in this other royal document. Uh, but we will see some more of him um, explained in chapter 25 of Second Chronicles. And then we have verse 13 which says, so Joash slept with his fathers, and watch this, and Jeroboam sat on his throne, and Joash was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel. Who would want to name their son Jeroboam? I mean, every king who's evil gets compared to Jeroboam. So why would you name your son Jeroboam? That would be like naming your daughter Jezebel. If you have any knowledge of the Bible, you really don't want to do that. Well, here, here we see then that he's going to be, now this is, this is deep, he's going to be from this point on Jeroboam the second. Yeah, because we've already looked at Jeroboam the first, who's the one who's mentioned almost with every king who does evil. But again, what we're going to see now is, this, this is kind of this bigger summary of Jehoash or Joash, and now it's going to go back a little bit in time, and it's going to talk about him and Elisha. And this is going to be Elisha's last 
time in the book of 2 Chronicles in this chapter. And tonight we're going to look at his last prophetic instruction. All right, so let's pick it up then in verse 14. This goes uh, from 14 to 21, but we're not going to not going to get all that accomplished tonight. We're going to see that Elisha is on his deathbed and Jehoash is upset and goes to see him. Verse 14, when Elisha became sick with the illness of which he was to die, that means he's on his deathbed or very close to it, Joash the king of Israel, so that's the one we just got done talking about, northern kingdom, came down to him and wept over him. Now we already know the life and times of Joash. It wasn't good. What do we see here? Was there a little flicker of revelation here? Was there a little flicker of light? Was there a little repentance? Was there a little honor of the prophet? It's interesting. We haven't seen Elisha in a while. Not that he hasn't been doing anything, but he hadn't been called on by Jehoahaz, and he hadn't really been called on that we know of by Joash, but Joash is going to see him when he finds out that he is on his deathbed. And then look at what he does. My father, my father. Now, Elisha wasn't his father. Jehoahaz was. But that is a term of endearment. You know, it's kind of like in our day, we, we say, yeah, he, you know, so-and-so was like a father to me. Or we, we say, he, he's my spiritual father. It's a term of endearment. And that's what Joash is using here. So we're wondering, maybe there is some sincere repentance. Maybe there's a little light. And then he cries, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And this could be a reference to referring to Elisha being the strong man, the stronghold on the dealings of Israel and even their military. Or it could be in reference to the fact that we have nothing left. Well, we come to verse 15 because something very interesting happens. Elisha said to him, Take a bow and arrows. And so he took a bow and arrows. Now, if you're an outdoorsman and you're a, a hunter, you're probably pretty happy at this. You, you see God's pronouncement, the prophet's um, enhancing an emphasis upon having a bow and arrows. But it has nothing to do with hunting. It has everything to do with Joash's future and if he's going to eventually conquer the Arameans. So Elisha says, take a bow and arrow and the arrows, so multiple arrows. And he took the bow and arrows. Then Elisha in his last instruction as a prophet, and remember, if Joash is there because he honors Elisha. He honors Elisha as a prophet of God and that his instruction is from the Lord. So it doesn't matter if it seems a little out of the ordinary. He should still see it with true faith as this is coming from God's prophet. It says, then he said to the king of Israel, this is Elisha speaking to him, Put your hand on the bow. And he put his hand on it. And then Elisha laid his hands on the king's hands. So this is another step further to show that this is, this is a, a prophetic announcement. This is something that should be very, very important. At this point, Joash should be taken as extremely serious. He doesn't know what's going to be said. He doesn't know what he's going to have to do, but he ought to be taking it very, very serious. We come to verse 17. It says, Elisha said to him, open the window toward the east. And that would be where the direction of where 
Aphek and the place where this, these battles would take place. And, and so this is representative now of it has something to do with Joash's enemies. Open the window toward the east. And I want you to, this is where I'm going to have you shoot the arrows. And then Elisha said, shoot. And he shot. And then Elisha said, the Lord's arrow of victory. Next time you're hunting and you shoot and you're successful, the Lord blesses you and you harvest an animal. I think what we really ought to start to do is saying, the Lord's arrow of victory, at least giving him the credit. But this had extreme prophetic significance. He says, the Lord's arrow of victory, even the arrow of victory over Aram. Of course, Aram is, was where Hazael was. And so this is going to be symptomatic of the times when Joash is going to have victory. And Elisha goes on to say, and you will defeat the Arameans at Aphek until you have destroyed them. Meaning, you will destroy them at Aphek, but not everywhere else. But you've got more arrows. But Joash wasn't putting this together. I think it's because of his lack of faith, his lack of seriousness, his lack of honor towards Elisha. Verse 18, then Elisha said, take the arrows, and he took them. And he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground, meaning shoot your bow and shoot those arrows into the ground. And he did. And he took one and shot. And he took another and shot. And he took another and shot. And he's like, oh, this is going to be great. Except he stopped. Hid more arrows. Verse 19, it says, so the man of God was angry with him. And said, you should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck Aram until you would have destroyed it. But now you shall strike Aram only three times. And so this is sad. And I suppose we might want to look at this about, you know, saying, well, he didn't tell him to keep on shooting but he didn't say stop it three times either. And you know what? There was enough here. This is a prophet telling you to shoot, keep on shooting. He had said at least that much because he shot three arrows. And you would have thought if, if he understood this spiritually, if he understood this at all, the arrows that he was given, he'd have shot them all. But he didn't. And so we, we see this, I think, this lack of faith in Jehoash, and therefore, it would suggest that when he saw Elisha on his deathbed and he wept, there were crocodile tears. They weren't tears of true emotion. They weren't tears of true repentance. I don't know what they were. I don't know what they were. But they weren't true tears of repentance or of faith. And so I'd just like to talk about this for just a moment. So let's talk about this. And I think this is the lack of faith. I think this is what we're seeing here. You know, by the way, he was worshiping false gods, but now he's turned to Yahweh because the false gods couldn't do anything. And he turns to Yahweh and perhaps even in, well, I guess it's the last resort. And you know, please don't say that when it comes to prayer. Well, I guess we tried everything else. We might as well pray. That should be the first thing we do. But we, we see his lack of faith because it's a lack of faith in God. And it's a lack of faith in Elisha as the prophet of God. Had he, had he had true faith, he would have understood this. He would have honored Elisha and kept doing what he was told to do. And he would have shot all of the arrows till they were gone. He... The, the, Elisha already told him, okay, three arrows, three victories. Keep on shooting. Well, he did not. He only shot the three times and didn't keep going. 
I think this is also, this lack of faith is also, the best way I can describe it is he didn't take spiritual things or the things of the Lord seriously. Maybe, can you imagine him going, man, this is silly. Why am I shooting an arrow in the ground? This is silly. Oh, yeah, like this is going to work. Well, you know, when you don't have faith, when, if you're an unbeliever, you, you see all of the things of the Lord as humorous, as a joke and sarcastic. And, and, and therein lies the difference. You have unbelievers who, who can't even see the reality of it. They think it's stupid. That's a word that they have said to describe the atonement of Christ. And we as believers, our eyes have been open and we're like, oh my word, this is the greatest thing we've ever known. And it is the greatest thing because God sent his son to die on the cross for our sins. And if we trust him as our savior, he will forgive us of our sins and give us eternal life. There's no works involved. But they, he didn't see it. And it reminds you of somebody who was doing evil in the sight of the Lord. He doesn't care about the Lord. He doesn't, maybe doesn't even believe in the existence of the Lord. He, for some reason, he seems to believe in the existence of Asherah because he can see her there as a tree or a pole that has been carved into an idol, but not the invisible living God who created all things. And so we see a lack of faith. So, you know, here's the deal. When it comes to believers, we do have faith. But sometimes we don't always have the faith we should. It comes to a crossroads when we know a principle of Scripture and we don't put it into practice. Maybe we don't think it's going to work in this instance. Well, that's a lack of faith of God, and that's a lack of faith in God's Word. Maybe we are trying everything else. Maybe we're putting our faith in finances. Maybe we're putting our faith in others. Maybe we're putting our faith in politics. Not saying that, not saying that getting the right guy in there doesn't do anything at all, but maybe that's what our faith is in rather than God. That is a lack of faith. And the, 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 the whole litmus test is we see a principle of Scripture we put it into practice no matter what, whether we understand it or not. You say, well, that sounds strange. You're telling me to put something into practice that I don't understand. Yes, I am. Actually, the Bible is. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Now, you understand what it says, and you understand what you're supposed to do, but you don't understand how it's going to work in this day and age and in this situation. God didn't ask you to understand it, and I think we can. I think we can. The more we study the Word, the, the more mature we get, but there still will be things that we don't fully understand, but we're to do it anyway. If we don't do it, you know what that shows? We're not shooting all the arrows in our quiver. We have a little bit of a lack of faith. We're not taking it as serious as we ought to. And then I want to also say this. Let's not forget Jehoahaz, who prayed with crocodile prayers. If he would have had sincere prayer and repentance, he would have never went back to worshiping the false gods after he was delivered. And this also was a sign of true faith, and he didn't have it. So I guess it says that we can sometimes be emotional in church. We sometimes can even make prayers, maybe even in church, but it doesn't always mean that God has our heart holy. And that's the part we need to work on. We need to work on our heart, and so that our prayers come from biblical wisdom from the scripture, not just pray about everything as far as, Lord, help me, help me win the rifle raffle, you know. <laughs> We're not going any farther than that, okay? <laughs> it, it 
means to be praying for the things that God is concerned about, like spiritual growth to believers, like unbelievers coming to Christ. I mean, those would be two of the main things. Also, we would include keeping the way the devil and demons in the spiritual warfare that we just learned about. In fact, this Sunday, we're going to talk about prayer. Some say that prayer here in Ephesians chapter 6 is the last piece of the armor. Well, we'll talk about that. Whether it is or whether it isn't, it, we're commanded to do it, and we ought to do it. But it should not be crocodile prayers. Then the final thing that I want to talk about is, even though this happened and there wasn't a true repentance, God still had mercy on his people. And he shows mercy and compassion on his people. The idea, in fact, we, we talked about this. I didn't talk about it. Uh, John talked about this at our men's breakfast. It was excellent. He talked about the Lord's justice and the Lord's mercy. And by the way, both of those come together in the cross where God's justice is satisfied when Christ dies for every sin and the mercy, when now faith is applied in Christ, mercy is extended to the believer whose sins are forgiven. We see this in the Old Testament. This is a very, very major attribute of God. And and one of the ways in which it's said is, like the compassion of a father toward his children. It says in Psalm 103, verse 13, just as the father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. They are his. We are his children. He's our heavenly father who has compassion and mercy on us in and through Christ. Isaiah 49, 15. Can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, but I will not forget you. We see other verses that talk about this, but one of the interesting things that we're going to see is we're looking at 2 Kings with, with, you know, everybody following Jeroboam, 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 sinning, not turning to the Lord. And yet we're going to find out the Lord does not give up on Israel. He still has mercy and compassion. In Isaiah, and I'll have you turn there. Would you turn to Isaiah 54, 7? In Isaiah 54, 7, it says, For a brief moment I forsook you, but with great compassion I will gather you. And that almost brings us to the point of tears, not crocodile tears, but that is incredible. We see the faithfulness of the Lord, the compassion of the Lord, that he will have compassion on his children no matter what. Now, he may discipline them, but he, they are his children, and he will continue to, to gather them. It says in Jeremiah chapter 12, talking to Judah now, and it will come about that after I have uprooted them, meaning they're in Babylonian captivity, I will have compassion on them, and I will bring them back, each one to his inheritance and each one to his land. What a great God we serve. And so we look at the mercy of the Lord, even in the book of 2 Kings, even though many of them have followed in the way of Jeroboam, even though they have provoked him to anger, we see this anger of justice and the mercy. And again, we see that attribute in God, but we fully see that attribute on the cross when justice and righteousness is met in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ and forgiveness is then able to be 
placed and given to the person who places their faith on them. And that's what happened to us. With that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for these observations, Lord, and applications. May we be people of faith who are putting your principles into practice. May we also never give up and understand you are a God of mercy. If we confess our sins, you are faithful to forgive us as believers. We also know that the moment we placed our faith in you as Savior, all of our sins were forgiven and there was no condemnation upon us. Lord, this is too good to be true, but it is true. It's almost hard to believe, but we believe it. And it is anything but a game or silly or a fable. It is absolute truth, and we thank you and praise you for showing us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.